0: Hello, Ratchet Book Club listeners. Before I get to the episode, I want to take a moment to address the June 24th Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. This decision stripped away the legal right to have a safe and legal abortion. Restricting access to comprehensive reproductive care, including abortion, threatens the health and independence of all Americans. This decision can also lead to the loss of other rights. To learn more about what you can do to help, go to podvoices.help. I encourage you to speak up, take care, and spread the word. Club where we read Hood Classics and Good Classics. I'm Derek. 916-633-1537. Ratchet and Ratchet at gmail.com. Ratchet Book Club on Twitter. Ratchet Book Club on Facebook. Chapter 62. Paul Damascus was walking the northern coast of California, Point Reyes Station to Tomales, to Bodega Bay, on the Stewart's Point, Gulala, and Mendocino. Some days he put in as little as 10 miles, and other days he traveled more than 30. On January 3rd, 1968, Paul was fewer than 250 miles from Spruce Hills, Oregon. He wasn't aware of that town's proximity, however, and he didn't, at the time, have it as his destination. With the determination of any pulp magazine adventurer, Paul walked in sunshine and in rain. He walked in heat and cold. Wind did not deter him, nor lightning. In the three years since Perry's death, he had walked thousands of miles. He hadn't kept a record of the cumulative distance because he wasn't trying to get in again or to prove anything. During the first months, the journeys were 8 or 10 miles along the shoreline north and south of Bright Beach and inland to the desert beyond the hills. He left home and returned the same day. His first overnight journey in June of 65 was to La Jolla, north of San Diego. He carried too large a backpack and wore khaki pants when he should have worn shorts in the summer heat. That was the first, and until now, the last long walk he made with the purpose in mind. He went to see a hero. In a magazine article about the hero, passing mention was made of a restaurant where occasionally the great man ate breakfast. Setting out after dark, Paula walked south, following the coastal highway. He was accompanied by the windy rush of passing traffic, but later, only by the occasional cry of a blue heron, the whisper of a salty breeze in the shore grass, and the murmur of the surf. Without pushing himself too hard, he reached La Jolla by dawn. The restaurant wasn't fancy, a coffee shop, aromatic bacon sizzling, eggs frying, the warm cinnamony smell of fresh pastries, the bracing scent of strong coffee, clean, bright surroundings luck favored paul the hero was here having breakfast he and two other men were deep in conversation at a corner table paul sat by himself at the far end of the restaurant from them he ordered orange juice and waffles the short walk across the room to the hero's table looked more daunting to paul than the trek he had just completed he was nobody a small-town pharmacist who missed more work each month, who relied increasingly on his worried employees to cover for him, and who would lose his business if he didn't get a grip on himself. He had never done a great deed, never saved a life. He had no right to impose upon this man, and now he knew he hadn't the nerve to do so either. Yet, with no recollection arising from his chair, he found that he had shouldered his backpack and crossed the room. The three men looked up expectantly. With every step through the long night walk, Paul had considered what he must say, would say, if this encounter ever took place. Now all his practiced words deserted him. He opened his mouth but stood mute. Raised his right hand from his side, worked his fingers in the air as though the needed words could be strummed from the ether. He felt stupid, foolish. Evidently, the hero was accustomed to encounters of this nature. He rose pulled out the unused four-chair. Please, sit with us. This graciousness didn't free Paul to speak. Instead, he felt his throat thicken, trapping his voice more tightly still. He wanted to say, The vain, power-hungry politicians who milk cheers from ignorant crowds. The sports stars and preening actors who hear themselves called heroes and never object. They should all wither with shame at the mention of your name. Your vision, your struggle, the years of grueling work, your enduring faith when others doubt it. The risks you took with career and reputation, it's one of the great stories of science, and I'd be honored if I could shake your hand. Not a word of that would come to Paul, but his frustrating speechlessness might have been for the best. From everything he knew about this hero, such effusive praise would embarrass him. Instead, as he settled into the offered chair... He withdrew a picture of Perry from his wallet. It was an old black and white school photograph, slightly yellow with age, taken in 1933, the year he had begun to fall in love with her, when they were both 13. As if he had been presented with many previous photos under these circumstances, Jonas Salk accepted the picture. Your daughter? Paul shook his head. He presented a second picture of Perry, this one taken on Christmas Day, 1964, less than a month before she died. She lay in her bed in the living room, her body shrunken, but her face so beautiful and alive. When finally he found his voice, it was Russ song with a blade of grief. My wife, Perry, Paris Jean. She's lovely, married 23 years. When was she stricken, Salt asked. She was almost 15, 1935. A terrible year for the virus. Perry had been crippled 17 years before Jonas Salt's vaccine had spared future generations from the curse of polio. Paul said, I wanted you, I I don't know. I, I just wanted you to see her. I wanted to say, to say, Words eluded him again, and he surveyed the coffee shop as if someone might step forward to speak for him. He realized people were staring. and embarrassment drew a tighter knot on his tongue. "'Why don't we take a walk together?' the doctor asked. "'I'm sorry, I, I interrupted. I made a scene.' "'You didn't at all,' Dr. Salk assured him. "'I need to talk to you. If you would give me a little of your time.' "'The word need,' Instead of want, moved Paul to follow the doctor across the coffee shop. Outside, he realized he hadn't paid for his juice and waffles. When he turned back to the coffee shop, he saw, through one of the windows, an associate of Salk's picking up the check from his table. Putting an arm around Paul's shoulders, Dr. Salk walked with him along a tree lined with eucalyptuses and Tory pines to a nearby pocket park. They sat on a bench in the sunshine and watched ducks waddle on the shore of a man-made pond. Salk still held the two photographs. Tell me about Perry. She... She died. I'm so sorry. Five months ago. I would really like to know about her. Whereas Paul had been confounded in his desire to express his admiration for Salk... He was able to speak about Perry at length and with ease, her wit, her heart, her wisdom, her kindness, her beauty, her goodness, her courage. Those were the threads in a narrative tapestry that Paul could have continued weaving for all the rest of his days. Since her death, he hadn't been able to talk about her with anyone he knew, because his friends tended to focus on him, on his suffering, when he wanted them only to understand Perry better, to understand what an exceptional person she had been. He wanted her to be remembered after he was gone, wanted her grace and her fortitude to be recalled and respected. She was too fine a woman to leave without a ripple in her wake, and the thought that her memory might pass away with Paul himself was anguishing. I can talk to you, he said to Salky. You'll understand. She was a hero, the only one I ever knew until I met you. I've read about them all my life in pulp magazines and paperbacks, but but Perry, she was a real thing. She didn't save tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of children like you've done. She didn't change the world you change it, but she faced every day without complaint. And she lived for others. Not through them. For them. People called her to share their problems, and she listened and cared. And they called her with their good news because she took such joy in it. They called her for her advice, and though she was inexperienced, really so short of experience in so many ways, she always knew what to say, Dr. Salk. Always the right thing. She had great heart and natural wisdom, and she cared so much. Studying the photos, Jonas Salk said, I wish I had known her. She was a hero, just like you. I wanted you. I wanted you to see her and to know her name. Perry Damascus. That was her name. I'll never forget it, Dr. Salk promised. With his attention still on Perry's photos, he said, But I'm afraid you give me far too much credit. I'm no Superman. I didn't do the work alone. So many dedicated people were involved. I know. But everyone says you're... And you give yourself far too little credit, Salt continued gently. There's no doubt in my mind that Perry was a hero. But she was married to a hero as well. Paul shook his head. Oh, oh no. People look at our marriage and they think I gave up so much, but... I got back a lot more than I gave. Doctor Salk returned the photos, put a hand on Paul's shoulder, and smiled. But that's always the way, you see. Heroes always get back more than they give. The act of giving assures the getting back. The doctor rose, and Paul rose with him. A car waited at the curb in front of the park. Doctor Salk's two associates stood beside it and seemed to have been there a while. Can we give you a ride anywhere? The hero asked. Paul shook his head. I'm walking. I'm grateful that you approached me. Paul could think of nothing more to say. Consider what I told you, Dr. Salk urged. Your pair will want you to think about it. Then the hero got in the sedan with his friends and they drove away into the sun morning. Too late, Paul thought of the one more thing he had wanted to say. Too late. He said it anyway. God bless you. He stood watching until the car cruised out of sight, and even after it dwindled to a speck and vanished in the distance, he stared at the point in the street where it had last been, stared while a breeze turned playful, tossing eucalyptus leaves around his feet. He stared until at last he turned and began a long walk home. He had been walking ever since, two and a half years with brief respites in bright beach. Admitting to the likelihood that he would never again devote himself seriously to his business, Paul sold the Jim Kessel, long his good right hand and fellow pharmacist. He kept the house, froze a shrine to his life with Perry. He returned to it from time to time to refresh his spirit. During the rest of that first year, he walked to Palm Springs and back, a round trip of more than 200 miles and north to Santa Barbara. In the spring and summer of 66, he flew to Memphis, Tennessee, stayed a few days, and walked 288 miles to St. Louis. From St. Louis, he hiked west 253 miles to Kansas City, Missouri, and then southwest to Wichita. From Wichita to Oklahoma City, from Oklahoma City east of Fort Smith, Arkansas, from whence he rode home to Bright Beach on a series of Greyhound buses. He slept outdoors rarely, and otherwise stayed in inexpensive motels, boarding houses, and YMCA's. In his light backpack, he carried one change of clothes, spare socks, candy bars, bottled water. He planned his journeys to be in a town every nightfall, where he washed one set of clothes and donned the other. He traveled prairies and mountains and valleys, past fields rich with every imaginable crop, crossed great forests and wide rivers. He walked in fierce storms when thunder crushed the skies and lightning tore it walked in wind that skinned the bare earth and sheer green tress from trees, and walked also in sun scrub days, as blue and clean as there had ever been in Eden. The muscles of his legs grew as hard as any of the landscapes that he trod, granite thighs, calves like marble, roped with veins. In spite of the thousands of hours that Paul was afoot, he seldom thought about why he walked. He met people along the way who asked, and he had answers for them, but he never knew if any answer might be the truth. Sometimes he thought he walked for Perry, using the steps she had stored up and never taken, giving expression to her unfulfilled yearning to travel. At other times, he thought he walked for the solitude that allowed him to remember their life in fine detail, or to forget, to find peace, or seek adventure, to gain understanding through contemplation, or to scrub all thought from his mind, to see the world, or to be rid of it. Perhaps he hoped the coyotes would stalk him through a bleak twilight or that a mountain lion set upon him on a hungry dawn or a drunk driver would run him down. In the end, the reason for the walking was the walking itself. Walking gave him something to do, a needed purpose. Motion equaled meaning. Movement became a medicine for melancholy, a preventative for madness through fog-shrouded hills with oaks, maples, madrones, and pepperwoods, through magnificent strands of redwoods that tower 300 feet. He arrived in Weyot on the evening of January 3rd, 1968, where he stayed the night. If Paul had any northernmost goal for this trip, it was the city of Eureka, almost 50 miles farther, and for no reason other than to eat Humboldt Bay crabs of their origin, because that was one of his and Perry's favorite foods. From his motel room, he telephoned Hannah Ray in Bright Beach. She still looked after his house on a part-time basis, paid the bills from a special account while he traveled, and kept him informed about events in his hometown. From Hannah, he learned that Barty Lampion's eyes had been lost to cancer. Paul recalled the letter that he had written to Reverend Harrison White a couple of weeks after the death of Joey Lampion. He'd carried it home from the pharmacy on the day that Perry died, to ask for her opinion of it. The letter had never been mailed. The opening paragraph still lingered in his memory because he had crafted it with great care. Greetings on this momentous day. I'm writing to you about an exceptional woman, Agnes Lampion, whose life you have touched without knowing and whose story may interest you. His thought had been that Reverend White might find an Agnes, Bright Beach's beloved pie lady, a subject who would inspire a sequel to the sermon that has so deeply affected Paul, who was neither a Baptist nor a regular churchgoer when he had heard it on the radio more than three years ago. Now, however, he was thinking not about what Agnes' story might mean to Reverend White, but about what the minister might be able to do to provide at least a small degree of comfort to Agnes, who spent her life comforting others. After supper in the roadside diner, Paul returned to his room and studied a tattered map of the western United States, the latest of several he had worn out over the years. Depending on the weather and the steepness of the terrain, he might be able to reach Spruce Hills, Oregon in ten days. For the first time since walking to La Jolla to meet Jonas Salk, Paul planned a journey with a specific purpose. Many nights, his sleep wasn't half as restful as he might have wished, for he often dreamed of walking in a wasteland. Sometimes, desert salt flats stretched in all directions, with here and there a monument of weather-gnarled rock, all baking under a merciless sun. Sometimes the salt was snow, and the monuments of rock were ridges of ice, revealed in the hard glare of a cold sun. Regardless of the landscape, he walked slowly, though he had the desire and the energy to proceed faster. His frustration built until it was so intolerable that he woke, kicking in the tangled sheets, restless and edgy. This night in Wiyot, with the high solemn silence of the redwood forest out there now, and waiting to embrace him in the morning, He slept without dreams. Before I go to the next chapter, I want to circle back on something that was said early on in this chapter, like the second page to me. But, you know, like probably three, four minutes in for y'all. The paragraph where Paul was thinking of himself in a lowly manner, uh, where it said he was nobody, a small town pharmacist who missed more work each month, who relied increasingly on his worried employees to cover for him. And who would lose his business if he didn't get a grip on himself. He had never done a great deed. Never saved a life. He had no right to impose upon this man. And now he knew he hadn't the nerve to do so either. I feel like there's... People listening. And I'm I'm one of them. I'm not going to lie. I feel like there's people who feel this way about themselves because we... Need mirrors, you know. People are mirrors for your soul, other people are mirrors for your soul. Like, you can't see yourself without a mirror, you know. So you can't see the good that's in you. You can't see the good that you do. You can't see the work that you do for others. You can't see the help that you give. You can't see the lives that you saved. You can't see the great words that you spoke. You can't see the love that you've offered. Because you can't see yourself. You just see yourself as going day by day. And sometimes you'll talk to somebody. But you never know how those words affect them. You never know how your thoughts affect. Make their day, make their month. You don't know how your insights change the life and change the world because you can't see yourself. And so that's why I think it's always so important to me to be a mirror for my friends and for my family because it's important that you're able to see the good that's in you, otherwise, you lose it, it withers. If you don't get encouraged for it to grow, it won't atrophy, it won't go away, but it will literally be harder and harder to bring it out. You will be less less enthusiastic about bringing it out. You'll wonder, am I making a change? Am I that hero? Am I that person? And I wanna let you know, more than likely, yes. Yes. If you're on the other side of the world teaching, you're a hero. If you're taking care of family and friends and doing everything you can, you're a hero. If you're fighting against this law that was overturned, if you're fighting against the Supreme Court and you're fighting for abortion rights, you're a hero. If you're fighting for black women, you're a hero. If you have ever knelt down beside a child who was in tears and helped them carry on, if you have ever listened deep in the night while your friend cried to you through the phone after a loss and you were the reason why they were able to get up the next morning, you're a hero. If you have ever given without the want of getting back If you have ever seen more in somebody than what anyone else saw, you're a hero. And I need you to know that being a hero sometimes is nothing more than throwing a pebble into the lake of somebody else's life. But that pebble causes ripples. If you throw a pebble into water right now, it might be the smallest pebble, but it'll cause ripples. And if it's thrown right, oh my goodness, I feel like preaching right now. If it's thrown the right way, those ripples will continue to spread across that water, across that body of that person's life. And it might flow through them into somebody else. And that's how you affect change. You can't be held back by wondering what your worth is. You can't be held back wondering if somebody respects you or loves you or wants you to be there. You are a hero. Push forward. And podcasters, if you're listening to me and you're wondering if anybody's listening to you, somebody right now is listening to you and you are getting them through a dark time. Through a rough patch through a hard place you're a hero and I just need you to know that I see it and reading those words made me think about you so I need you to keep going forward don't take stock of what you've done don't look backwards at what you've done because then you'll pat yourself on the back and that might change the ripples but just keep going That's what heroes do. Chapter 63 After the encounter with the quarter-spitting vending machines, Junior wanted to kill another Bartholomew, any Bartholomew, even if he had to drive to some far suburb like Terra Linda to do it, even if he had to drive farther and stay overnight at a Holiday Inn and eat steam table food off a buffet crawling with other diners' cold germs and garnished with their loose hairs. He would have done it too. And risked establishing a pattern to please my notice, but still, the small voice of Zed guided him now, as so often before, and counseled calm, counseled focus. Instead of immediately killing anybody, Junior returned to his apartment on the afternoon of December 29th and went to bed, fully clothed, to calm down, to think about focus. Focus, Caesar Zed teaches, is a sole quality that separates millionaires from the flea-ridden, sore-pot, urine-soaked winos who live in cardboard boxes and discuss vintages of Ripple with their pet rats. Millionaires have it. Winos don't. Likewise, nothing but the ability to focus separates an Olympic athlete from a cripple who lost his legs in a car wreck. The athlete has focus, and the cripple doesn't. After all, Zed notes, if the cripple had it, he would have been a better driver, an Olympic athlete, and a millionaire. Upon Junior's many gifts, his ability to focus might have been the most important. Bob Ciccani, his former instructor in matters meditative, had called him intense and even obsessive following the incident involving meditation without seed. But intensity and obsession were false charges. Junior was simply focused. He was focused enough, in fact, to find Bob Giacchana, kill the insulting bastard, and get away with it. Hard experience had taught him, however, that killing someone he knew, while occasionally necessary, didn't release stress. Or if it did briefly release stress, then unforeseen consequences always contributed to even worse future stress. On the other hand, killing a stranger like Bartholomew Prosser released stress better than sex did. Senseless murder was as relaxing to him as meditation without seed and probably less dangerous. He could have killed someone named Henry or Larry without risk of creating a Bartholomew pattern that would prickle like a pungent scent in the hound dog nostrils of Bay Area homicide detectives. But he restrained himself. Focus. Now he had to focus on being ready for the evening of January 12th, the reception to Celestina White's art show. She had adopted her sister's baby. Little Bartholomew was in her care, and soon, the kid would be in Junior's reach. If killing the wrong Bartholomew had broken a dam in Junior and released a lake of tension, whacking the right Bartholomew would set loose an ocean of pent-up stress, and he would feel free, as he had not felt since the fire tower, freer than he had been in his entire life. When he killed THE Bartholomew, this haunting would finally end, too. In his mind, Vanadium and Bartholomew were inextricably linked because it was the maniac cop who first heard Junior calling out Bartholomew in his sleep. Did that make sense? Well, it made more sense at sometimes than at others, but it always made a lot more sense than anything else. To be rid of the dead but persistent detective, he must eliminate Bartholomew. Then it would stop, the torment would stop, surely. His sense adrift of drift, a sliding aimlessly through the days will lift from him, and he will find purpose once more in determined self-improvement. He will definitely learn French and German, too. He will take cooking classes and become a culinary master. Karate, too. Somehow, Vanadium's malevolent spirit was also to blame for Junior's failure to find a new heartmate, in spite of all the women he had been through. Undoubtedly, when Bartholomew was dead and Vanadium vanquished with him, romance and true love would bloom. Lying on his side in bed, clothed and shod, knees drawn up, arms folded across his chest, hands pressed under his chin, like a precocious fetus dressed and waiting for birth, Junior tried to recall the chain of logic that led to this long and difficult pursuit of Bartholomew. That chain led three years into the past, however, which to Junior was an eternity, and not all the links were still in place. No matter. He was a future-focused, focused man. The past is for losers. No, wait. Humility is for losers. The past is the teeth that feeds those too weak to face the future. Yeah, that was a line from Zed the junior had stitched on a needlepoint pillow. Focus. Prepare to kill Bartholomew and anyone who tried to protect Bartholomew on January 12th. Prepare for all contingencies. Jr. attended a New Year's Eve party with a nuclear holocaust theme. Festivities were held in a mansion, usually hung with cutting-edge art. But all the paintings had been replaced with poster-sized blow-ups of photos of ruined Nagasaki and Hiroshima. An outrageously sexy redhead hit on him as he selected from an array of bomb-shaped canapes on a tray held by a waiter dressed as a ragged and soot-smeared blast survivor. Myrtle... The redhead preferred to be called Scamp, which Junior entirely understood. She wore a day green miniskirt, a spray-on white sweater, and a green beret. Scamp had fabulous legs, and her brawlessness left no doubts about the lusciousness and authenticity of her chest. But after an hour of conversation about something or other, before suggesting that they leave together, Junior maneuvered her into a reasonably private corner and discreetly put a hand up her skirt just confirmed that his gender suspicions were correct. They spent an exciting night together, but it wasn't love. The Phantom Singer didn't sing. When Junior cut open a grapefruit for breakfast, he didn't find a quarter in it. On Tuesday, January 2nd, Junior met with the drug dealer who had introduced him to Google, the document forger, and he arranged to purchase a 9mm handgun with custom machine silencer. He already had the pistol he had taken from Frieda Bliss's collection, but it didn't come with the sound suppressor. He was preparing for all contingencies. Focus. In addition to the firearm, he placed an order for a lock release gun. This device, which could automatically pick any lock with just a few pulls of his trigger, were sold strictly to police departments and its distribution was tightly controlled. On the black market, it commanded such a high price that Junior could have bought the better part of a small squint painting for the same bucks. Preparation. Detail. Focus. He woke several times that night, instantly alert for a ghostly serenade, but he heard no otherworldly crooning. Scamp spent Wednesday ravishing him. It wasn't love, but there was comfort in being familiar with his partner's equipment. On Thursday, January 4th, he used his John Pinchbeck identity to purchase a new Ford van with a cashier's check he leased a private garage in the Pinchbeck name near the Presidio and stored the van there. That same day, he dared to visit two galleries. Neither of them had a pewter candlestick on display. Nevertheless, Thomas Vanadium's hostile ghost, that terrible prickly burr of stubborn energy, wasn't done with Junior yet. Until Bartholomew was dead, the cop's filthy, scabby, monkey spirit would keep coming back and coming back, and it would surely grow more violent. Junior knew that he must remain vigilant. Vigilant and focused until January 12th of coming on, eight days ago. Friday brought Scamp again, all of Scamp, all day, every way, wall-to-wall Scamp. So on Saturday, he hadn't enough energy to do more than shower. Sunday, Junior hid out from Scamp. Using his answer phone to screen her calls and work with such astonishing focus on his needlepoint pillows that he forgot to go to bed that night. He fell asleep over his needles at 10 o'clock Monday morning. Tuesday, January 9th, having cashed out a number of investments during the past 10 days, Junior made a wire transfer of $1.5 million to the gaminer account in the Grand Cayman Bank. In a pew in Old St. Mary's Church in Chinatown, Junior took delivery of the lock release gun and the untraceable 9mm pistol with the custom machine silencer, as previously arranged. The church was deserted at 10 o'clock in the morning. The shadowy interior and the menacing religious figures gave him the creeps. The messenger, a thumbless young thug whose eyes were as cold as those of a dead hitman, presented the weapon in a bag of Chinese takeout. The bag contained two wax, white chipboard cartons, Mugu Gaipan, steamed rice. One large bright pink box filled with almond cookies and, on the bottom, a second pink box containing the lock release gun, the pistol, the silencer, and a leather shoulder holster to which was tied a gift tag bearing a hand-printed message with our compliments. Thanks for your business. At a gun shop, Junior purchased 200 rounds of ammunition. Later, that many cartridges seemed excessive to him. Later still... He purchased another 200. He bought knives and then sheaths for the knives. He acquired a knife sharpening kit and spent the evening grinding blades. No quarters, no singing, no phone calls from the dead. Wednesday morning, January 10th, he wired $1.5 million from the Gaminer account to Pinchbeck in Switzerland. Then he closed out the account in the Grand Cayman Bank. Aware that his tension was building intolerably, Junior decided that he needed scant more than he dreaded her. He spent the remainder of Wednesday until dawn Thursday with the indefatigable redhead, whose bedroom contained a vast collection of scented massage oils and sufficient volume to fragrantly lubricate half the rolling stock of every railroad company doing business west of the Mississippi. She left him sore in places that had never been sore before. Yet he was more stressed out on Thursday than he had been on Wednesday. Scamp was a multi-talented woman with smoother sin than a depilated peach with more delicious roundnessness than Junior could catalog. But she proved not to be the remedy for his tension. Only Bartholomew, found and destroyed, could give him peace. He visited the bank in which he maintained a safe deposit box under the John Pinchbeck identity. He withdrew the 20000 in cash and retrieved all the forged documents from the box. In his car... Currently a Mercedes, he made three trips between his apartment and the garage in which he had stored the Ford van under the Pinchbeck name. He took precautions against being followed. He stashed two suitcases full of clothes and toiletries, plus the contents of Pinchbeck's safe deposit box, in the van, then added those precious items that he be loathed to lose if the hit on Bartholomew went wrong, forcing him to leave his Russian Hill life and flee arrest. The Works of Caesar Z Sklint's three brilliant paintings, the needlepoint pillows, to which he had colorfully applied the wisdom of Z, constituted the bulk of his collection of bare essentials. 102 pillows in numerous shapes and sizes, which he had completed in just 13 months of feverish stitchery. If he killed Bartholomew and got away clean, as he expected that he would, then he could subsequently return everything in the van to the apartment. He was just being prudent by planning for his future. Because the future was, after all, the only place he lived. He would have liked to take Industrial Woman as well, but she weighed a quarter ton. He couldn't manage her alone, and he dared not hire a day worker, not even an illegal alien to assist him, and thereby compromise the pinchbeck van and identity. Anyway, and curiously, Industrial Woman increasingly looked to him like scamp. As various abraded and inflamed mucous membranes constantly reminded him, he had had more than enough of scamp for a while. At last, the day arrived. Friday, January 12th. Every nerve in Junior's body was a tightly strung trigger wire. If something set him off, he might explode so violently that he'd blow himself into a psychiatric ward. Fortunately, he recognized his vulnerability. Until the evening reception for Celestina White, he must spend every hour of the day in calming activities soothing himself in order to ensure that he would be cool and effective when the time came to act. Slow, deep breaths. He took a long shower, as hot as he could tolerate, until his muscles felt as soft as butter. For breakfast, he avoided sugar. He ate cold roast beef and drank milk laced with a double shot of brandy. The weather was good, so he went for a walk, though he crossed the street repeatedly to avoid passing newspaper vending machines. Shopping for fashion accessories relaxed Junior. He spent a few hours browsing for tie chains, silk pocket squares, and unusual belts. Riding the up escalator in a department store between the second and third floors, he saw Vanadium on the down escalator, 15 feet away. For a spirit, the maniac lawmaker appeared disturbingly solid. He wore a tweed sports jacket and his slacks that, as far as Junior could tell, were the same clothes he had wore on the night he had died. Apparently, even the ghosts of Splint's atheistic spiritual world were stuck for eternity in the clothes in which they had perished. Junior glimpsed Vanadium first in profile, and then, as the cop rode down in the way, only by the back of his head. He hadn't seen this man in almost three years, yet he was instantly certain that this was no coincidence to look alike. Here went the filthy, scabby monkey spirit itself. Upon reaching the third floor, Junior ran to the head of the down escalator. The stumpy ghost departed the sliding stairs to the second floor and walked off in the women's sportswear. Junior descended the escalator two steps at a time, not content to let it carry him along at its own pace. When he reached the second floor, however, he found that Vanadium's ghost had done what ghosts do best faded away. Abandoning his search for the perfect tie chain, but determined to remain calm, Junior decided to have lunch at the Saint Francis Hotel. The sidewalks were crowded with businessmen in suits, hippies in flamboyant garb, groups of smartly attired suburban ladies in town to shop, and the usual forgettably dressed rabble, some smiling and some surly and some mumbling, but as blank-eyed as mannequins, who might be hired assassins or poets for all he knew, eccentric millionaires and mufti or carnival geeks who earned their livings by biting heads off live chickens. Even on good days, when he wasn't hassled by the spirits of dead cops and wasn't prepping himself to commit murder, Jr. sometimes grew uncomfortable in these bustling crowds. This afternoon, he felt especially claustrophobic as he shouldered through the throng, and admittedly paranoid too. He warily surveyed those around him as he walked, and looked over his shoulder from time to time. On one of those backward glances, he was unnerved but not surprised to see Vanadium inspector. The ghost cop was forty feet behind him, beyond ranks of other pedestrians, every one of whom might as well have been faceless now, smooth and featureless from brow to chin, because suddenly Junior could see no countenance other than that of the walking dead man. The haunting visage bobbed up and down as the grim spirit rode along, vanishing and reappearing and then vanishing again among all the bobbing and swaying heads of the intervening multitudes. Junior picked up his pace pushing through the crowd, repeatedly glancing back, and although he only caught quick squints of the dead cop's face, he could tell that something was terribly wrong with it. Never a candidate for matinee idol status, Vanadium looked markedly worse than before. The port wine birthmark still pulled around his right eye. His features were not merely pan flat and plain as they had been before but were distorted. Bash. His face appeared to be bash, pewter-pounded. At the next corner, instead of continuing south, Junior angled aggressively in front of oncoming pedestrians, stepped off the curb and headed east, traversing the intersection against the advice of a don't walk sign. Horns blared. A city bus nearly flattened him, but he made the crossing unscathed. As he stepped out of the street, don't walk shortened the walk, and when he checked for pursuit, he found it. Here came Vanadium, who would have been shivering in want of a topcoat if his splash had been real. Junior continued east, weaving through the horde, convinced that he could hear the ghost cop's footsteps, distinct from the tramping noise made by the legions of the living, penetrating the grumble and bleat of traffic. Hollow, the dead man's tread echoed not only in Junior's ears, but also in his body, in his bones. Part of him knew this sound was his heartbeat, not the footfalls of an otherworldly pursuer, but that part of him wasn't dominant at the moment. He moved faster, not exactly running, but hurrying like a man late for an appointment. Every time Junior glanced back, Vanadium was following his way through a throng, stocky but almost gliding, grim and grimmer, hideous and closer. An alley opened on Junior's left. He stepped out of the crowd into this narrow serviceway shaded by tall buildings and walked even more briskly still not quite running because he continued to believe that he possessed the unshakable calm and self-control of a highly self-improved man. At the midpoint of the alleyway, he slowed and looked over his shoulder. Flanked by dumpsters and trash cans, through steam rising out of grates in the pavement, past part delivery trucks, here came the dead cop. Running. Suddenly, even in the heart of the great city, the alleyway seemed as lonely as an English moor. And not a smart place to seek asylum from a vengeful spirit. Casting aside all pretense of self-control, Junior sprinted for the next street. Where the sight of multitudes swarming in winter sunshine filled him not with paranoia or even uneasiness anymore. But with an unprecedented feeling of brotherhood. Of all the things you hadn't seen coming, I'm the worst. The heavy hand would come down on the shoulder. He would be spun around against his will. And there before him would be those nail head eyes. The port wine stain. Facial bones crushed by a bludgeon. He reached the end of the alleyway. Stumbled into the stream of pedestrians. Nearly knocked over an elderly Chinese man. Turned and discovered. No vanadium. Vanished. Dumpsters and delivery trucks hulked against the building walls. Steam billowed out of street grates. The gray shadows were no longer disturbed by a running shade in a tweed sports jacket. Too rattled to want lunch at the St. Francis Hotel or anywhere else, Junior returned to his apartment. Arriving home, he hesitated to open the door. He expected to find vanadium inside. No one was waiting for him except industrial woman. Needlepoint, meditation, and even sex had not recently provided him with significant relief attention. The paintings of Sklint and the works of Zed were packed in the van, where he couldn't at the moment take solace from them. Another milk and brandy helped, but not much. As the afternoon waned towards a pretentious dusk and toward the gallery reception for Celestina White, Junior prepared his knives and guns. Blades and bullets soothed his nerves a little. He desperately needed closure in the matter of Naomi's death. That was what these past three years and what these supernatural events were all about. As Clint so insightfully put it, some of us live on after death, survive in spirit, because we're just too stubborn, selfish, greedy, grubbing, vicious, psychotic, and evil to accept our demise. None of these qualities describe sweet Naomi, who had been far too kind and loving and meek to live on in spirit, after her lovely flesh failed. Now, at one with the earth, Naomi was no threat to Junior, and the state had paid for his negligence in her death, and the whole matter should have been brought to closure. There were only two barriers of full and final resolution. First, the stubborn, selfish, greedy, grubbing, vicious, psychotic, evil spirit of Thomas Vanadium, and second, Seraphim's bastard baby, little Bartholomew. A blood test might prove that Junior was a father. Accusations might sooner or later be made against him by bitter and hate-filled members of her family. Perhaps not even with the hopes of sending him to prison, but solely for the purpose of getting their hands on a sizable part of his fortune in the form of child support. Then the police in Spruce Hills would want to know why he had been screwing around with an underage Negro girl if his marriage to Naomi had been as perfect as fulfilling as he claimed unfair as it seems. There is no statute of limitations on murder. Go figure. Closed files can be dusted off and opened again. Investigations can be resumed, and although authorities will have little or no hope of convicting him on murder on whatever meager evidence they could dig up, he will be forced to spend another significant portion of his fortune on attorney fees. He would never allow himself to be bankrupted and made poor again. Never. His fortune had been won at an enormous risk with great fortitude and determination. He must defend it at any cost. When Seraphim's bastard baby was dead, evidence of paternity would die with it. And any claim for child support. Even Vanadium's stubborn, selfish, greedy, grubbing, vicious, psychotic, evil spirit would have to recognize that all help of bringing Junior down was lost. And it would at last either dissipate in frustration or be reincarnated. Closure was near. To Junior Kane the logic of all this seemed unassailable. He prepared his knives and guns, blades and bullets. Fortune favours the bold, the self improved, the self evolved, the focused. Chapter sixty four. Nolly sat behind his desk, suit jacket draped over the back of his chair, pork pie hat still squarely on his head, where he remained at virtually all times except when he was sleeping, showering, dining in a restaurant, or making love. A smoldering cigarette, usually dangling a slant from one corner of a hard mouth set in a cynical sneer, was standard issue for tough guy gumshoes, but Nolly didn't smoke. His failure to develop this bad habit resulted in a less satisfyingly murky atmosphere than the clients of a private dick might expect. Fortunately, at least the desk was cigarette scarred because it came with the office. It had been the property of a skip-tracer named Otto Zellm, who had made a good living at the kind of work Nolly avoided out of boredom, tracking down deadbeats and repossessing their vehicles. On a stakeout, Zellm fell asleep in his car while smoking, thereby triggering the payoff of both life and casualty insurance policies and freeing the lease on his furnished space. Even without the dangling cigarette and without the cynical sneer, Nolly had an air of toughness worthy of Sam Spade, largely because the face that nature had given him was a splendid disguise for the sentimental sweetie who lived behind it. With his bull neck, with his strong hands, with his shirt sleeves rolled up to expose his lovely hairy forearms, he made a properly intimidating impression. As if Humphrey Bogart, Sidney Greenstreet, and Peter Lorre had been put in a blender and then poured into one suit. Kathleen Clerkel, Miss Wolfstan, was sitting on the edge of Nolly's desk, looked diagonally across it at the visitor in the client's chair. Actually, Nolly had two chairs for clients. Kathleen could have sat in the second. However, this seemed to be a more appropriate pose for a Hawkshaw's dame. Not that she was trying to look cheap. She was thinking Myrna Loy is Nora Charles and the Thin Man. worldly but elegant. Tough but amused. Until Nolly... Kathleen's life had been as short on romance as a saltless saltine is short on flavor. Her childhood and even her adolescence were so colorless that she had settled on dentistry as a career because it seemed, by comparison to what she knew, to be an exotic and exciting profession. She dated a few men, but all were boring and none were kind ballroom dancing lessons, and ultimately competitions, promised the romance that dentistry and dating hadn't provided. But even dancing was somewhat a disappointment until her instructor introduced Kathleen to this balding, bull-necked, lumpy, utterly wonderful Romeo. Whether or not the visitor in the client's chair had ever known much romance, he unquestionably had experienced too much adventure and more than his share of tragedy. Thomas Vanadium's face with a quake-rocked landscape. Cracked by white scars like fault lines in the strata of granite. The planes of brow, cheek, and jaw canted in an odd relationship to one another. The hemangioma that surrounded his right eye and discolored his face had been with him since birth. But the awful damage to his bone structure was the work of man, not God. In the noble ruin of his face, Thomas Vanadium's smoke gray eyes were striking, filled with a beautiful sorrow. Not self pity. He clearly didn't regard himself as a victim. This, Kathleen felt, was the sorrow of a man who had seen too much of the suffering of others, who knew the evil ways of the world. These were eyes that read you at a glance, that shone with compassion if you deserved it, and that glare with a terrifying judgment if compassion wasn't warranted. Vanadium hadn't seen the man who had clubbed him from behind and who had smashed his face with a pewter candlestick. But when he spoke the name Enoch Kane. The quality in his eyes was not compassion. No fingerprints had been left, no evidence in the aftermath of the fire at the Bresler house or in the Studebaker Hall from Quarry Lake. But you think it was him, Nolly said. I know. For eight months following that night, until late September of 1965, Vanadium had been in a coma, and his doctors had not expected him to regain consciousness. A passing motorist had found him lying along the highway near a lake, soaked and muddy, when, after his long sleep, he awakened in the hospital, withered and weak. He'd had no memory of anything after walking the Victoria's kitchen, except a vague, dreamlike recollection of swimming up from a sinking car. Although Vanadium had been morally certain about the identity of his assailant, Intuition without evidence was not sufficient to stir the authorities into action. Not against a man on whom the state and county had settled four million two hundred fifty thousand in a matter of his wife's mortal fall, they would appear either to be incompetent in the investigation of Naomi Kane's death, or to be pursuing Enoch in the new matter out of sheer vindictiveness. Without stacks of evidence, the political risks of acting on a policeman's instinct were too great. Simon Maguson. Capable of representing the devil himself for the proper fee, but also capable of genuine remorse, visited Vanadium in the hospital, soon after learning that the detective had awakened from a coma. The attorney shared the conviction that Kane was a guilty party, and that he had also murdered his wife. Maggison considered the assaults on Victoria and on Vanadium to be hideous crimes, of course, but he also viewed them as affronts to his own dignity and reputation. He expected a felonious client, rewarded with four and a quarter million instead of jail time, to be grateful and therefore to walk a straight line. Simon's a funny duck, Vanadium said, but I like him more than a little and trust him implicitly. He wanted to know what he could do to help. Initially, my speech was slurred. I had partial paralysis in my left arm and I had lost 54 pounds. I wasn't going to be looking for Kane for a long time, but it turned out Simon knew where he was. Because Kane had called him to get a recommendation of a PI here in San Francisco, said Kathleen. To find out what happened to Seraphim White's baby. Vanadium's smile and that tragically fractured face might have alarmed most people, but Kathleen found it appealing because of the indestructible spirit it revealed. What kept me going these past two and a half years was knowing that I could get my hands on Mr. Kane when I was finally well enough to do something about him. As a homicide detective, Vanadium had a career spanning 98% closure and conviction record on the cases he handled. Once convinced he had the guilty party, he didn't rely solely on solid police work. He augmented the usual investigative procedures and techniques with his own brand of psychological warfare. Sometimes subtle, sometimes not. Which frequently encouraged the perpetrator to make mistakes that convinced him. The quarter and the sandwich, Nolly said, because that was the first stunt that Simon Maguson had paid him to perform. Magically, a shiny quarter appeared in Thomas Vanadium's right hand. It turned end over end, knuckle to knuckle, disappeared between thumb and forefinger, and reappeared at the little finger, beginning its cross-hand journey once more. Once out of the coma and stabilized for a few weeks, I was transferred to a hospital in Portland, where I had to undergo eleven surgeries. He either detected their well-concealed surprise, or assumed they would be curious as to why, in spite of extensive surgery, he still wore this Boris Karloff face. The doctors, he continued, needed to repair damage to the left frontal sinus, the spinoidal sinus, and the sinus cavernous, which had all been partially crushed by that pewter candlestick, fronter, malol, ethmoid, maxillary, sphenoid, and palatine bones had to be rebuilt to properly contain my right eye, because it sort of, well, it dangled. That was just for starters, and there was considerable essential dental work as well. I elected not to have any cosmetic surgery. He paused, giving them the chance to ask the obvious question, and then smiled at their reticence. I was never Carry Cary Grant to begin with, said Vanadium, still ceaselessly rolling the quarters across his fingers so I had no big emotional investment in my appearance. Cosmetic surgery would have added another year of recuperation time, probably much longer, and I was anxious to get after Kane. Seeing to me this mug of mine might be just the thing to scare him into an incriminating mistake, even a confession. Kathleen expected this would prove to be true. She herself was not frightened by Thomas Vanadium's appearance, but... Then she had been prepared for it before she had first saw him. And she wasn't a murderer, fearful of retribution to whom this particular face would seem like judgment personified. Besides, I still live by my vows as much as possible, though I've had the longest continuing dispensation on record. A smile on that cracked countenance could be touching, but an ironic look now worked less well. It gave Kathleen a chill. Vanity is a sin I've more easily been able to avoid than some others. Between the surgeries and for many months thereafter, Vanadium had devoted his energies to speech therapy, physical rehabilitation, and the concoction of periodic torments for Enoch Cain, which Simon Maguson was able to implement every few months through Nolly and Kathleen. The idea wasn't to bring Cain to justice by torturing his conscience, since he had allowed his conscience to atrophy a long time ago, but to keep him unsettled and thereby magnify the impact of his first face-to-face encounter with the resurrected Vanadium. I've got to admit, Nolly said. I'm surprised these little pranks have rattled him so deeply. He's a hollow man, Vanadium said. He believes in nothing. Hollow men are vulnerable to anyone who offers them something that might fill the void and make them feel less empty. So, the coin stopped turning across his knuckles and, as though with volition of its own, it slipped into the tight curve of his curled forefinger. With the snap of his thumb, he flipped the quarter into the air. I'm offering him cheap and easy mysticism. The instant he flipped the coin, he opened both hands, palms up, fingers spread. What a distracting flourish. A relentless pursuing spirit, a vengeful ghost. Vanadium dusted his hands together. I'm offering him fear. As though Amelia Earhart, the long-lost Averitrix, had reached out of the twilight zone and snared the two bits. No tumbling coin glinted in the air above the desk. Sweet fear, Vanadium concluded. Frowning, Nolly said, What, it's up your sleeve? No, it's in your shirt pocket, Vanadium replied. Startled, Nolly checked his shirt pocket and withdrew a quarter. It's not the same one. Vanadium raised his eyebrows. You must have slipped this one in my pocket when you first came in here, Nolly deduced. Then where's the coin I just tossed? Fear? Kathleen asked, more interested in Vanadium's words than of his prestidigitation. You said you were offering fear to Cain, as if that were something he would want. In a way, he does, Vanadium said. When you're as hollow as Enoch Cain, the emptiness aches. He's desperate to fill it, but he doesn't have the patience or the commitment to fill it with anything worthwhile. Love, charity, faith, wisdom. Those virtues and others are hard won with commitment and patience, and we acquire them one spoonful at a time. Cain wants to be filled quickly. He wants the emptiness inside poured full in quick, great gushes, and right now. Seems like lots of people want that these days, said Nolly. Seems like, Vanadium agreed. So a man like Cain obsesses on one thing after another. Sex, money, food, power, drugs, alcohol anything that seems to give meaning to his days, but that requires no self-discovery or self-sacrifice. Briefly, he feels complete. However, there's no substance to what he's filled himself with, so it soon evaporates, and then he's empty again. And you're saying fear can fill his emptiness as well as sex or booze? Kathleen wondered. Better. Fear doesn't require him even to seduce a woman or to buy a bottle of whiskey. He just needs to open himself to it and he'll be filled like a glass under a faucet. As difficult as this may be to comprehend, Kane would choose to be neck deep in the bottomless pool of terror, desperately trying to stay afloat, rather than suffer that unrelieved hollowness. Fear can give shape and meaning to his life, and I intend not merely to fill him with fear, but to drown him in it. Considering his battered and stitched face, considering also his tragic and colorful history, Vanadium spoke remarkably little drama, His voice was calm, nearly flat, rising and falling so little that he almost talked in a monotone. Am I doing a good job, by the way? I'm trying. I'm really, really trying. Like, I need y'all to know how hard it is to talk like this for more than five seconds. What I've taken on, there's this show on Netflix. I know. I know. Yeah, I know. I know. I Yeah. No, I I... I know. But... There's a show called On My Block. And one of the characters on my block... Is a Hispanic guy who talks with a monotone. And so I'm just trying to match his voice. Yeah, no, I know. I don't ride with that either. I don't ride with him either. Like, forget Dave Chappelle. Yeah. It's sad. Because I used to be my dude. But when you start making decisions... Like... That change your future, you got to be ready to take the consequences of who you lose along the way, you know what I'm saying? So, yeah. Yet Kathleen had been as totally riveted by his every word as ever she had been by Lawrence Olivier's great performances in Rebecca and Wuthering Heights. In Vanadium's quiet and in his restraint, she heard conviction and truth, but she detected something more. Only gradually did she realize that it might be this. The subtle resonance arising from a good man whose soul containing not one empty chamber was filled with those spoon by spoon virtues that do not evaporate. And that's what I was saying earlier, like you can give yourself to others and you won't lose yourself. You'll actually gain more. You'll gain more by giving of yourself because it gives you more of a purpose and it gives you more of a... (sighs) Some people scoff at it. Like, seriously. Like, there's this conversation that's going on right now, and I know I'm dating myself in what should be an evergreen show, but there's a conversation about if you uh, have a child by somebody and they have children by other people and you bring your child food and you don't bring anybody else in that house food, are you a jerk? And the answer is yes. Not because you're choosing not to feed children who aren't yours. Yeah, you might not have the money for it. You probably do. But because you are making a conscious decision to create a rift in that child's life with his family. To prove a point. To prove a point that is empty. Instead of just feeding those who need to be fed. Like it doesn't hurt you. It can only help you. It can only bless you in the long run. You know what I'm saying? And so for you to make that conscious decision to be spiteful to these kids who have never done anything to you and will never do anything to you because you're an adult. You know what they're going to do something to? Your child. Okay. Back to the evergreen. They sat in silence, and the moment held such an extraordinary quality of expectation that Kathleen would not have been surprised if the vanished quarter had suddenly appeared in mid-air and dropped, winking brightly, to the center of Nolly's desk, there to spin with perpetual motion until Vanadium chose to pluck it up. Nolly finally disturbed the quiet. Well, sir, you're quite a psychologist. That saving smile once more returned lost harmony to the scarred and broken face. Not me. From my perspective, psychology is just one more of those easy sources of false meaning, like sex, money, and drugs, but I will admit to knowing a thing or two about evil. Daylight had retreated from the windows, winter night wound in scarves of fog, like a leprous mendicant, rattled out of breath as though begging their attention beyond the glass. With a shiver, Kathleen said, We'd like to know more about why we did the things we did for you. Why the quarters? Why the song? Vanadium nodded. And I'd like to hear more about Kane's reaction in more detail. I read your reports, of course, and they've been thorough, but necessarily condensed. There'll be lots of subtleties that only reveal themselves in conversation. Often, the apparently insignificant details are the most important to me when I'm devising strategy. Rising from his chair and rolling down his shirt sleeves, Nolly said, if you'll be our guest for dinner, I suspect we'll all have a fascinating evening. A moment later, in the corridor, as Nolly locked the door to a suite, Kathleen linked her right arm through Vanadium's left. Do I call you Detective Vanadium, brother or father? Please, just call me Tom. I've been forcibly be retired from the Oregon State Police with full disability because of his face. So I'm not officially a detective anymore. Yet, until Enoch Kane is behind bars where he belongs, I'm not ready to be anything but a cop. Official or not. 916-633-1537 Ratchet and Ratchet at gmail.com Ratchet Book Club on Twitter Ratchet Book Club on Facebook Leave a review on Spotify 13 seconds Leave a review on Podchaser Copy and paste that into the Apple Podcast And then copy and paste that into the Good Pods app You can donate to the show at patreon.com slash single simulcast or buymeacoffee.com slash sscast or on the Good Pods app. Thank you so much for listening. I greatly appreciate it. Y'all be good. I'm going to holler at you later. Peace.